Welcome to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey of Kiss Organics. This is the podcast where we discuss the cutting edge of organic growing from a science-based perspective and draw on top experts from around the industry to share their wisdom and knowledge. Our guest today is Ron Wallace. Ron is a two-time world record holder, three-time world champion, and was the first grower in the world to grow a pumpkin over 1,500 pounds in 2006. And in 2012, he was the first to eclipse the 2,000-pound barrier at 2,009 pounds. Today, he is regarded as one of the world's premier giant pumpkin growers. He has appeared on many local and national TV shows and been subject of numerous books, newspaper, and nationally recognized magazine articles. Hey, Ron, thanks for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. It's great to get to chat with you over the air. Hi, Ted. Yeah, great to be on the show. Looking forward to it. Well, let's start off giving listeners a little bit of your personal history and how you got into growing giant pumpkins. Sure. Well, my dad was, I believe, the first person in New England to grow giant pumpkins, you know, and start talking about it competitively. And that was back in the in the early 80s, uh, he started doing it in his you know small backyard in West Fork, Rhode Island. Back in those days, there wasn't much information on giant pumpkins out there. Matter of fact, there was none. You had to get on the phone, try to call somebody, or write somebody a letter. And uh, you know, so he did it, you know, close to 10 years, and then never really achieved any success uh, that he was looking for. So he kind of got out of the got out of the hobby at the time. And uh, I remember back in 1992 and 93, I was at my parents' home for Christmas and somebody had bought him a book, How to Grow World-Class Giant Pumpkins by Don Langevin. So I read the whole book cover to cover on Christmas Day and I said, you know, we got to give this another shot because now we have some information that we can we can try to use in the garden. So since the early 90s, it, it's kind of been obsessive compulsive and education and knowledge trying to grow the world's biggest pumpkin. So it's, it's, it's been a wild ride since the early nineties. And you've actually had some success in the giant pumpkin world. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, where you started in terms of what size your pumpkins were and the genetics and how that sort of evolved into eventually getting the, literally the world record? Sure. Well, uh, the genetics is what separates you know, this hobby and the networking amongst the giant pumpkin community is incredible. It's like no other community I've ever witnessed. That's the reason why we can take on 900, anywhere from 800 to 1,000 square foot, we're growing pumpkins on the verge of heading towards 3,000 pounds. I mean, world records at 26, 24. So it's been the genetics and the sharing of knowledge and information and all the genetic crosses that have taken place since those early days that have put us to this point. And I was fortunate to get a couple of really good, you know, what you call hot seed stocks that everybody, everybody wanted in their day. And it enabled me to, you know, set a couple of Guinness world records and some North American championships, but it's, it's been the work of the whole community. And, and when the internet evolved in the early 90s and that's where i got all my information from back then after don's books was getting on the internet and talking to soil scientists if they would talk to you you know many would kind of just hang up or brush me off if they heard ron wallace was on the phone but that kind of changed years later because a lot of those people seek us out now in the community to see what we're doing and how we're fertilizing and 
things like that. So it's pretty much been, you know, the networking of the community, the sharing of information, the genetics being a big one, you know, pruning techniques, you know, being another one and, you know, right soil biology and mycorrhizal inoculants, which have, you know, put pumpkin growing on the verge where if you don't have 2000 pound pumpkin, you're probably not going to win the way off you're going to. And that's incredible thinking that when we started out to be a member of the 500 pound club was something everybody strove, you know, strived for. And then it was, you know, the 700 pound club. Then it was, Oh my God, a thousand pound club. And at the seminars that they had in Canada at the time, I used to get up there and be one or two people or three people who grew a thousand pound pumpkin to be like, Oh my God, I, I really want to be on that stage someday growing a thousand pound pumpkin. And now, you know, with the right genetics and the right system going on, you know, 45, 50 days after you pollinate your pumpkin, there's a lot of pumpkins on the verge of a thousand pounds or more. And that's just incredible. That's amazing. I, so I've been trying my hand at it for the last few years. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to know Donna Geneva Emmons. They're local to me and wonderful people. And then uh, Ryan Ewing has been really generous in sharing some of the genetics from his squash and pumpkins and some of the seeds that he has. And I think a couple years ago, my record is 725 pounds, but I'm not doing all of the uh, bearing all the vines and doing all the training and everything that really needs to be done to really grow a, a huge giant, but 725 pounds was a huge hit with the preschool kids on the property and everyone that came to the farm, which is so blown away by the pumpkin. And I know it's not that big compared to what you guys do, but it still was pretty, uh, pretty amazing for us. It was, it was, it was great. Well, not, not everybody who gets involved in the hobby, uh, is to try to set, set records. I, I really wish I wasn't so competitive. I, you know, I, I want all my friends to do well and, the network of the family and, and the friends that we've made over the, you know, 25 plus years has, has been incredible. But, you know, I, I swing for the fences and a lot of people do. And I wish, I wish I really wasn't that way. It'd be a lot less pressure growing, to be honest with you. But the majority of the people who get involved in the hobby is to get something you know, that they can be proud of, put it out in front of their house. I get emails pretty much every day. I get somebody who called me the other day in, it uh, it moved me when he said that he was making memories with his grandson that are going to last a lifetime uh, growing his giant pumpkin. So there's, there's far more people who, you know, still 700 pounds is a heck of an accomplishment to grow something that, that big. Um, I've had people email me. So well, it's my first year. I, I, I didn't do that great. I only had a thousand pounds. I said, well, that took us, you know, almost 12 years and thousands of thousands of dollars and hundreds and hundreds of hours of backbreaking work to try to achieve those results to let the information, the information's out there now on how to grow these giant pumpkins. There's no more secrets. So there's a lot of people who went before the people nowadays to, to put the information out there on the internet, but there's far more growing just to enjoy it and, and have, you know, a pumpkin for their family than it is somebody who's trying to set a record. And, and you'll notice... You'll never hear me mention about winning money. Yes, there's money to be won if you win a way off, and I've been fortunate to win some, but nobody grows giant pumpkins to has their eyes set on winning cash prizes because those are few and far between. Yeah, can you give a little bit about sort of the history of the giant pumpkin community in terms of where you guys started and where you are now? I mean, you've, you've thrown a few numbers out there, but uh, I don't know if listeners realize how much 
how how rapidly the industry has evolved over the last even just the last decade and sort of how your techniques have changed over that time too sure well howard dill uh, a farmer in nova scotia is the one that we can credit for coming up with the dills the dills atlantic giant you know saying howard was a i think he's a four-time uh four-time world world champion and you know in the late 70s and early 80s he was doing the painstaking work and making the genetic crosses um you know that we still enjoy today they all all of these genes although they're different they all revert back to howard dill and his early and his early work you know once again back at the time i think his world record was 400 pounds uh somewhere in you know the 1980s early 80s somewhere and uh you know like i said once the internet you know came upon you know people started figuring out that you have to bury these vines in order to get a double root system because where the where the vines run wherever there's a leaf stalk there's a root that will that'll pop up through the top and you have to stabilize the plant so where we've made the biggest advances is the technique of pruning um and anybody who knows anything knows pruning alters the state of a plant and generally for good uh it forces growth in different areas and so we only let the side vines go so long now now we kind of know it's between 12 and 15 feet on a side vine we we've pretty much have figured out that to try to be a contender you need a plant in the square foot range of probably 700 to a thousand maybe even a maximum of 1200 square foot so the vine bearing you know, became one of the big keys and the pruning. And along with that is, you know, how much kelp meal, you know, growers put about 15 pounds of kelp meal per thousand square foot in the spring to offer a lot of micronutrients and things like that. Uh, the internet was the first big push of the hobby in the early 90s. And then mycorrhizal fungi took giant pumpkins to a different level, uh, you know, back in around... 2006 when I set my first world record I started studying mycorrhizae around 2003 2004 I started making phone calls and you know I found uh, Bob Linderman at uh, I believe it was Oregon State University at the time we, he started educating me more on the benefits of it so I started studying it I, I used it and set a world record in 2006 and uh, Pretty much everybody today who's growing competitively uses, you know, mycorrhizal fungi. Um, yeah, the benefits, the benefits of it are endless, uh, and it really helps us do what we got to do uh, as far as bringing water back to the host and nutrients. And people think mycorrhizae is just about phosphorus. It's not. Uh, it's about water. It's about nutrients. It's about a healthier root system. Um, so, those have been the big. Uh, the big advancements, and you know, another one that goes in there is a sharing of the seeds, uh, and the education of it is free because once again, back in the day, people who were winning weren't letting people know what they were doing, and and back in the day, the people who were winning, you know, they were adding a lot of compost and cow manure, and you know, there wasn't as many people growing as nowadays. Not taking anything away from them, you know, they were innovators. They had certain techniques that we still use today, but. Uh, the internet took giant pumpkin growing to a whole different level as far as the sharing of knowledge and education and, and all for free. So for a while there, weren't 
giant pumpkin growers primarily growing uh, conventionally, so using you know chemical nutrients, mineral salts, and then started reincorporating back some of these uh, biological additives. You mentioned mycorrhizal fungus. I know some people use compost teas um, and compost. Uh, what what that what was that point in time and how did that transition sort of increase the ability of the pumpkin uh, of, of the yields of these pumpkins? Well, and, that, and that's a, a very good question because you know compost tea certainly is used uh, you know extensively. I, I still find compost tea requires a little bit more education on our part because uh, there's a lot of uh, snake oil as you know out there, so a lot of a lot of people need to be educated. On compost teas, but there's a very big percentage of growers who are either using someone's or making their own, uh, so that helps specifically. But but back in the day, all farming was was kind of synthetics, and you laid it down, and and that was it. So even major farming now has changed, uh, where they you know, find that you know, those fertilizers we were using were killing the soil microbes, you know, because they were so heavy in salt, and you know a lot of it is. You know, you're using potassium fertilizers. That was the same as throwing rock salt on your driveway in the winter to kill, to get rid of the ice. Um, and that's what people were putting in the garden. So what we found over the years is that there needs to be a mix between some synthetic and mostly biological. Most people's programs are probably 80% biological, 20% kind of synthetic fertilizers because sometimes you need that little extra push that a synthetic will give you right away. But we've learned, we've educated about, we've, like I tell people, we feed our soil and the soil feeds our plants. We let the microbes consume organic matter and release it in the what I like to call a mycorrhizosphere, right in that area in and around the roots where uh, you know, plants can use it. And it, you know, it will only take what it needs for nutrients. Like when you use synthetics or something else, it's you know, it's just like uh, releasing pigs at a buffet, I like to say, because they just kind of eat, 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 and eat. And that's not the best thing at times, too, because we strive for balance. So within the last 10 years specifically, giant pumpkin growers have sort of switched their programs to more biologicals. There's a lot of azosprillin, you know, being used, bacillus subtilis, and things like that. You know, I, I could go on and on, but a lot of growers, they're all using it. They all have you know, their own little system or maybe some biologicals. They like humic fulvic acid, pretty much used by me every time I water or fertilize to, to help make nutrients more available, helps feed soil microbes. So whenever I'm fertilizing my plant, I like to say, once again, I'm fertilizing my soil to make sure I got a good population of microbes doing their thing. Now, feel free to correct me if I get this wrong, but as it was explained to me that, uh, one of the issues that giant pumpkin growers were having was because of the high amounts of chemical fertilizers that were being used, uh, the plants were more prone to cracking or splitting, which is a disqualification in the giant pumpkin world for those of you that don't, aren't familiar with it. If you have a crack or a split, your pumpkin is, is done uh, for the season. But also you're more open to diseases and things like that as you're pushing this pumpkin so hard to put on weight. Uh, is that an accurate statement? Yep, that's all. That's all correct. Uh, you know, you can't push them too hard, especially with, you know, like I said, with synthetics and stuff like that. And yes, you're more prone to disease because fusarium, pythium, rhizoctonia, all those things that, you know, cucurbits, which are pumpkins, they say, you know, plant like a year on soil and then get off of it for five years because that's how prone they are to disease. And I've had my handful 
of disease problems here and continue to monitor it. And, uh, you know, all of those diseases I just mentioned love nitrogen and water. And as a giant pumpkin grower, you're pushing both. But the nitrogen that you get from using synthetics far pushes, you know, nutrient, you know, even deficiencies afterwards because once they get bloated, they tie up other nutrients that, that you'll be missing. But they also help push disease too. So we've backed off that. Yes, the, the splitting, uh, you know, whether it's a, a, a small crack that gets in a, in a ring, what we call a dill ring in a pumpkin, where a, a pumpkin grows so fast, they get cross sections and they'll split. Uh, stem splits used to be prevalent years and years ago, and I think a big part of that was genetics, number one, and number two was the use of synthetics. So that's, that's kind of been eliminated a bit from the hobby. You don't see many stem splits anymore because people won't grow them next year. That's one of, been one of the great things about chat rooms and, and the Internet is you see what these pumpkin seeds are growing. And if you don't like the shape or if you're a color person, you don't like the color or if it had a bad stem, you just won't plant it next year. And that, it keeps sort of those bad traits out of the hobby. But, yeah, definitely – uh, we've noticed that we've been able to get more pumpkins to the scale since we've we, since we've imparted more of an organic approach to it. Not to say that any of us are strictly organic. There are some people who grow that way. Uh, it's possible, but in in our area where it's you know like today's 92 degrees, over 80 percent humidity, and tonight the low will be 70 degrees. It'll be humid all night. You have to work in some chemicals on occasion, or you'll never make it to the end of the season. Yeah, you know, I grow all organically because that's sort of our philosophy. But uh, I get powdery mildew every year, which I know, you know, is, is affecting my overall yield. But I'm not going for a world record either, so it's a very different situation. Uh, it sounds like it's a sort of a, com a hybrid approach that's really allowing you to maximize plant growth. And we actually see this with the cannabis industry, too. Uh, some of the biggest yields I've seen have been sort of that combination of biologicals and chemicals. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely what that's definitely what's happening in our in our hobby. Uh, it's it's a combination too because you know when you need to color up if you got something going on like right now we got what we call fruit load stress. These pumpkins are are approaching if they're going to be an all star they got to be hitting between thirty and fifty plus pounds a day for the next month. And if you notice you start to get a little lime green or you just start to tie up some nutrients or, or, you know, if you got to go to the whip and color them up, you know, that's not going to happen. You know, you can only feed the soil so much. You have to pop in some synthetics to get it to green up. And, uh, but it, it's, it's such a small amount compared to what it used to be. So yes, uh, the biggest yields we're finding is people who are combining both. And there's plenty of studies out on the internet using biologicals in combination with, synthetic fertilizers where now you know a lot of this, you know a lot of the technology and the papers the field trials that they're doing are coming out saying that the the yields were increased using both in combination maybe 80 20 or something like that uh, i know a lot of people who grow strictly organic you know don't want to hear that but the results are out there now where you can see combining them both in the program works it works a bit better but it, it's all what you want to go after you know people who are growing medicine there's a huge market for strictly organic, and, and they should stay that way. Uh, you know, people who just want size and yield, and they go about it a different way. Well, and I think you really 
hit on an important point there when you said that you had, everyone was reducing the amount of synthetic inputs that they were they were adding into their patch. And that's something that is a goal for for myself as an organic grower is to help people in making that transition and get people to use less chemical nutrients. So the fact that these biologicals are not only better for the planet, but also better for your plant and allows you to reduce your inputs on the chemical side, I think is, is really important. Oh, it's, it's, it's a fact and and it works. Um, especially now the, the stuff that's, that snake oil, you know, it may come out on the market with a great marketing pitch and, fancy labels and stuff like that but growers are smart nowadays no matter what you're growing whether you're growing flowers vegetables cannabis or giant pumpkins the word gets out there pretty quick if the stuff doesn't work and people are really good at looking at labels now so if you look on there and your main ingredient is less than one percent or point oh oh one of something that's very very reasonable like a lot of people add you know humic acid as a base to a lot of this stuff because it makes the water come out nice and brown and everybody thinks, wow, look at that, look at how rich it is. But then when you get to educate yourself and you read the label and say, I just paid a, I just paid this for a quart of humic acid, that's ridiculous. Uh, so people get sharp uh, real quick, as they should be nowadays, that the information's out there, what, you know, what kind of works and what doesn't. Yeah, I think that's an important point because this really is for you guys a passion. It's a sport and, and sort of an act of love you know, it's, uh, it's not making you any money. You're really doing it because you enjoy it. So you have to make sure you follow a budget so you're not spending all your money on these, on your pumpkin patch. Uh, I, I read on bigpumpkins.com about all the people and all the jokes that are made about how much people love to spend on their patch and how much time they spend out there. It's, uh, it's pretty entertaining. <laughs> yeah, you know, right now at this time of the year, I'm, I'm doing eight plants this year, which is too many. I have to go back to four to five because it's just, it's just too much. You know, I'm, I'm 40 hours a week out here to grow eight plants. Some people will put 40 hours in on four plants or three. I mean, a lot of people, you get very, very obsessive compulsive with, with doing this. And yeah, you can spend, you can spend an awful lot of money uh, doing this or, or you can get away with some, you know, rudimentary skills and go see a friend down the street who has free compost and you can do well too. So it's just one of those things, probably like your community, you kind of get out of it what you put into it. Anybody who's won these major way-offs now or something, you know, they weren't doing it by spending one or $200 for the season to grow their pumpkins. You know, they, they made some sort of investment other than time. Um, but you can, like I said, you can put as much into it or as little into it as you want uh, and still have, you know, some success. But the people who are doing it consistently, um, you know, they're investing a little bit more than time. All right, so you mentioned some of these things that you're using in your patch and some of these techniques that apply to giant pumpkins. And I'm just wondering, how might we apply some of that knowledge to growing cannabis? So you and I just talked a little bit off air about watering and how important watering is. Can you touch on that and how, how it affects overall yield? Sure. Uh, our giant pumpkins here, right now, my giant pumpkins, uh, you know, around four, you know, 400, 500 pounds. And like I mentioned there, they're at that stage now where if they're going to be a stud, they got to start doing, you know, 38 to 50 plus pounds a day for a month. So having said that is you, you need water to achieve that. So I have an overhead watering system. I do a lot of watering by hand. I have 275 gallon totes where 
any biologicals or any fertilizers I can put right in the tote and I can hand water and drench what I call a drench, drench the plants myself. But these pumpkins right now are getting close to 100 gallons of water a day, seven days a week. We've, we've had no rain in New England here this season other than really early in the spring. So we have to be consistent with our watering. So I don't know how that is in your community, but our watering has to be that you can't skip well, I'm not going to worry about water today. Hey, I'm going to the beach with my friends. Uh, you know, most of us have an automated irrigation system that will go on and off on its own. Me, I'm home, so I do have an automated system, but I choose to, to run it myself where I'll have water twice a day. They'll get 50 gallons by around 11, 11.30 in the morning. I wait till the plants are dry. One of the worst things you can do is water any plant, whether it be vegetable garden, cannabis, or anything, uh, especially in the morning, especially if you're outside. If there's dew on the leaves and then you start watering, especially overhead, if you have any mold spores, you're just going to blow them all over to all your plants. So it's best to let your plants dry. So I opt for kind of late morning to water my plants. So around 11, 11.30, that water will kick on. Then I'll come back at the hottest time of the day, right around 2.30, 2.30 to 3 o'clock. I can, you know, I run six overhead sprinklers at one time and, you know, and, 25, 30 minutes, I can pump out another 50 gallons per plant, so I can do about 300 gallons in that in that time frame. But we find watering has to be consistent, it has to be there every single day. Now, if you get, you know, one, two, three inches of rain, you can back off for a few days, and hopefully you don't get too much rain, because that's another thing we find. If, if you let the, the soil go dry and you take a big, big rainstorm, you could explode your pumpkins, because now... They were deprived of water, and now there's so many roots, and they're, they're just sucking up water, and um, you could have problems. So we really need to be consistent with our watering. Yeah, because one of the things you're finding, too, is without this consistency, you're losing yield, which I think is the big takeaway take for cannabis growers, is water stress, whether overwatering or underwatering, watering, is going to affect your plant's accessibility susceptibility to disease and also its ability to maximize yield. Yeah, there's a fine line on the watering. And believe me, I've pushed it too much many a times uh, because, you know, when it's really hot and really humid, especially if you're growing outdoors, what the root system does is it kind of shuts down because what it's doing is it's protecting that leaf stomata. It's protecting what you call going up the chimney where your vapor loss and your, your water loss goes right out through the stomata of the leaves. So when you're hot and humid, the plant protects itself, so the roots kind of close it down. So you have to be careful. We do you know, watering a lot at that time because now your roots are just going to sit there in water. The longer they sit there in water without working actively, then you open yourself up for pythium, water molds, uh, things like that. But I found with consistency of of having your pumpkin, what we call weighing over the charts or weighing on chart, there's a chart that we go by as to what your pumpkin should weigh by inches. It's very, very good chart. It's very, very close in weight. I fortunately have had many that have gone over the charts, which is a good sign. And that all comes from, yeah, genetics do play some role in that, but it's watering. Uh, once I started watering a little more a few years ago, my pumpkins consistently started to weigh more than what they should because they're all their water weight. It only makes sense. But once again, there's a fine line as to am I adding too much water or am I adding enough water? And it's very, very, very narrow. So watering is something that all gardeners, no matter what you're growing, 
need to get dialed in on what works. I have sandy loon soil here in New England, and people tell me all the time, hey, how many gallons of water are you adding? Well, if I'm adding 100 gallons, if you're in Pennsylvania somewhere and you have a heavy clay soil, that might be twice the amount of water you need. So I'm always very leery to give watering amounts or fertilizing amounts. I, I push with boron a lot. Uh, but boron rhymes with moron, and, and you can go toxic with boron really quick. But in my sandy loom soil, boron is tough to keep the levels up. I need boron for cell division, cell elongation, so I have to use borax sometimes twice a week at a pretty high amount. And I don't let that amount out to anybody, not to be secretive, but I don't want anybody doing damage to their plants and getting toxicity because I've been tissue testing for 25 years, and I kind of know what my plants need. So I find every garden's different, and maybe in your community, that's the same thing. A lot of growers are always asking somebody, you know, hey, what are you doing that makes yours look this good? And somebody say, well, I use this product. And somebody says, okay, that, that's going to be the magic bullet. Well, there's really no one magic bullet, but that person set up their lighting, their watering, their drip system. You know, I find that people who are successful doing anything, there's more than one thing. There's a whole program. You know, I hear that a lot where people will be like, you got to try product X. It's, it's the one thing that saved my garden or, or made me put on yield or, or it's a magic bullet. Yeah. But one thing that you alluded to there was that you're doing tissue testing, you're doing soil testing. And that's something I want to talk a little more about, but really it comes down to any deficiency. So if that magic bullet product is the limiting growth factor in the soil or in that plant, then yeah, you're going to get amazing results. But if it's not, like if your soil is already high in potassium and this product is high in potassium, you're going to actually uh, potentially do something that's detrimental for your plant. So I think that's a really important point that you brought up that. Yeah, I see that all the time. And somebody will say to me, hey, what do you think of this product? So-and-so uses it. I'm like, okay, well, I have respect for that person. But so-and-so has low potassium in their garden. And I, I try to teach people what, you know, you'd be surprised how many people don't know how to read a fertilizer label, what the three numbers mean. And if you're high in potassium, like you said, you're putting potassium down to begin with. Potassium is like the dominant dog. You know, it is... It's the number one thing that gets in the X elm and the root system and the leaf system of plant quicker and faster than anything. So if your potassium's high, you know you're blocking out magnesium. And once your plants start to yellow a bit, you know magnesium sulfur is a deficiency that's been caused by excess potassium. So I couldn't stress that more. Uh, I don't know how the tissue testing goes in the cannabis industry. But I'm sure now with the explosion of it that there's going to be labs specifically testing for it. And uh, I, once you test your garden so many times, you know, I can tell a lot of times by looking at it what a deficiency is because I've been in the same gardens for 25 years. And I find the soil and the tissue tests don't vary too much year to year. I tissue test every two weeks at this time of the year now. My last tissue test will probably be around the 1st of September. And that's pretty much enough for me to take it home. But until you really get dialed in as to what's going on in your garden, then it really doesn't make sense to know what's going on in a guy. You know, I'm on the East Coast, you're on the West Coast. We're both growing cannabis. Uh, but I don't know what your conditions are, so it's tough for me to educate somebody until they get dialed in in their own patch. And a good way of doing that is with the, you know, tissue tissue testing. People tell me, well, I soil tested the other day. Well, soil's only going to tell you what's available. What's there? The tissue test is going to tell you what's going up the plant. 
And that's the most important thing at the stage we're at right now, growing pumpkins. It's about tissue testing. Yeah, it's a, it's a little challenging with cannabis for a couple of reasons. So one, the big challenge is not a lot of labs will do tissue testing on cannabis because it is still federally illegal. So you can't mail samples in, for example. So that's one challenge. Uh, the other challenge is that uh, a lot of growers don't know how to interpret soil tests or tissue tests. So the uh, one of the tests that we now sell is an artificial resin test from this company called Soil Savvy. And what it is, is it shows what the plant potentially could take up over a period of five days. So the advantage of that being, it gives you a little better idea of what the plant is able to take out of the soil versus say like a Malik 3 test that will just tell us everything that's in the soil, but not what's available to the plant. So that's, that's a good point there um, that you brought up regarding, regarding testing. So what you're doing is a combination of soil testing, um, chemical fertilizers in small amounts, and then uh, biologicals. Is that is that pretty accurate? That that's 100% accurate. And like I said, the biologicals have been huge for us, and you know, specifically in the last, you know, you know, maybe about 10 years ago, it started to get a big push because you know, remember for years, you know, even scientists didn't give much credit to biologicals. Uh, now everybody knows you know, the important role that they play in your garden. So yeah, biologicals are huge, you know, for us and the combination of them. And you know, no one's ever burnt their plants or put on biologicals and then walked away the next day and came out and had fertilizer burn so bad that you that you that it affected your yield from biologicals. You know, biologicals a little bit goes a long way too. It's all about you know multiplying colonies in your soil, and, and it takes time. Uh, I can tell people all the time now. It, you got to stop biologicals early, because if you do have a if you do have a problem, you know, it's like taking a knife to a gun point, point at some point. You can't come in with biologicals when you have a problem. Or you can't start midway in the cycle of the season. Yeah, it's better than nothing. You know, if you have no choice, you can start it then. But if you start them right from the beginning, right, right out of the box, right into the soil, that's that's how you start with you know mycorrhizae and any biologicals when the plant's small. So what are you using exactly uh, in your garden right now? You mentioned humic and fulvic acid. Um, you mentioned potentially compost teas and mycorrhizal fungus. What sorts of things are you using in your patch? I use a lot of seaweed, a lot of seaweed powder. And, uh, you know, I, I have a, a, a tremendous one, uh, you know, on my site that I use. Pretty much every watering has humic fulvic and seaweed in it. I mean, seaweed's one of the best overall things you can feed your plants because of the, you know, trace minerals and nutrients. It helps remineralize your soil. That's one of the best things that you can use. And, and I use that pretty much everywhere. I opt to feed daily and spoon feed rather than put on a heavy dose once or twice a week. So every day I'm feeding. I use a lot of uh, L amino acids. Uh, there's a great product out there from Growth Products called Essential. Essential and Companion, uh, Companion is Bacillus subtilis, which is a great, uh, you know, biological to help shield roots for diseases. Those two are like my peanut butter and jelly. They go together. Every two weeks, every 14, maybe 17 days max, I'm going on with a drench of those two, you know, biologicals, and they're, they're tremendous. Uh, also, in that drench, I'll use Azos from Extreme Gardening, you know, azospirillin. I mean, it's a tremendous fixer of atmospheric nitrogen, but uh, 
another benefit of it is it helps plants create that natural growth hormone indole-3-acidic acid. Um, it, it promotes that naturally in the plant, and that's the biggest benefit to me because the more roots that you have that it creates, the more roots, the more areas you have for inoculation by your mycorrhizal fungi. So it's a, it's a total whole program. Um, you know, I also use, you know, like Epsom salts. You know, I think many home gardeners know by now it's not just for soaking your feet. Epsom salts, you know, applies a quick shot of magnesium and sulfur. And my potassium gets a little high in my soil. I made the mistake of adding too much compost last fall, so I paid the price so far this season by tying up nutrients. So if I need to need to add some quick a quick shot of sulfur and some magnesium, there's nothing better or more realistic in price than Epsom salts. So so I use a lot of fish, you know, you know, seaweed, powdered seaweed, you know, I call it fish, fish and seaweed. It, it's a mixture of the two, humic fulvic acid and those biologicals I mentioned. Pretty much they're in my program once a week I'm doing that and some of the other ones I'm doing like the companion and essential every two weeks. That's by labeled rate. Uh you know, there's there's no need of putting it on more than label rate because, you know, some of that stuff can get costly. You don't want to waste money. But without ever expanding root system on our plant, we need to apply it a little more often. If you're growing in like it seems to be like out in New England, uh, the legal cannabis growers grow 12 plants and pretty much everybody grows in between a five gallon, and 15 gallon pot seems to be the home gardener here. You could probably do it a little less because your roots are contained. Uh, our root system is so vast. You know, we'll find roots, you know, 10 foot out past where the vines are in our garden and there'll be no leaf or vine around within 10 foot. Those, those roots are just racing past the plant. And you know they're looking for they're looking for water and nutrients. So we have to, you know, we probably have to cut the rate down a little bit and drench a little bit more with that stuff. But that's a pretty much uh, the basis of my you know biological you know program. But then, like I mentioned, the borax too, and I do that. I I put it in with my Epsom salts, and and I have to do that here for you know for reasons I mentioned because of my sandy loom soil. Yeah, well, you know, there's some good studies out, especially with seaweed, that show that, you know, micro doses at greater frequency perform much better than high doses uh, fewer times a year. So it, it definitely makes a difference to apply these things like you are in smaller amounts at greater frequency, especially with the humic acid and the seaweed. So I'm glad you brought that up. And then yeah, in I, terms... I cut the label rate down on that. I mean, I'm drenching out of 275 gallon tanks right now and like the label rates you know let's call it a teaspoon per gallon uh you know you, i mean just think of how much product you would need each drench so i cut that down you know by less than half you know sometimes a quarter of it i'll do like a, a, a quarter of the amount but i'm doing it three four days in a row unless i get some rain so i'm i like i said i'd rather be there just a little bit at a time and i, I could tell you another a connection that we have now too you know, with, with cannabis growers is pretty much a lot of the heavy hitters in the hobby. We're all pH in our water now. That's something we never did up until a couple of years ago. Uh, you'd be surprised what some of these nutrients can do with the pH of your water once you start adding them. I was shocked when I first started pH in my water back in 2015, just how something skyrocketed it and some stuff dropped it. And uh, I find... Kind of pH around six two or something like that seems to 
seems to work best for the plants, but that's another common connection of what we're doing, you know, and what, you know, your community is doing. Now there's a lot of parallels there. It's one of the things I like to bring up because you guys are just as passionate about your plants as cannabis growers are, and you're both pushing the envelope in terms of trying out the latest and the greatest techniques or the latest and greatest uh, products as a way of maximizing growth and yield. So there's a lot of parallels there. In fact, I think you guys are actually a little more fanatic because you're not getting uh, you're not getting a final product that's either edible or smokable or sellable. You're really just doing it for the satisfaction of this you know, having the largest vegetable in the world. Yeah, that you know, that's a very good point because we're not, you know, Oz is not grown uh, for, uh, you know, for consumption. Uh, it, it has no medical, you know, value to it or anything. But uh, Oz are grown just, yeah, just for size. And, uh, you know, some people grow for color. You know, some people, you know, they like their genetics and they'll only plant stuff that's going to throw a really pretty orange, you know, pumpkin. But, you know, most of us, uh, just uh, strictly for size. So yeah, we do push the envelope a bit more. That's a very, very good point where, you know, someone in your community might not because of, you know, the medical, you know, value of it, things like that. But yeah, we do, we do push the envelope, you know, real hard and real fast. That's for sure. I mean, once again, to think that, you know, we're probably only four or five years away, maybe from a 3000 pound pumpkin. Uh, it'll probably be done by somebody growing in a greenhouse you know, we got some really good greenhouse growers now. And, you know, I, I started a, I used a bigger greenhouse this year in the spring for the first time ever. I was only in it for six weeks and it blew, you know, it blew the plants right out of the water. They were growing so fast. I mean, I was not in there for the heat of the season because being in New England, unless you had thousands of dollars, you could never cool it or get the airflow in there to maintain. But my first six weeks I grew in a greenhouse was like one team playing with aluminum bats and one team playing with wooden bats is no comparison. So I think the first 3000 pound pumpkin will be grown uh, in a greenhouse, but to think that we're on the verge of that is incredible. Nothing should get that big. And once again, I'll, I'll say it a hundred times that comes from people willingly working with each other uh, and sharing information and knowledge. And, you know, pumpkin growers, like you said, you said it best. We push the envelope because we're just going for size. What I find with, the cannabis community that reaches out to me, there's a small niche of growers who really, that I found, that really want to educate themselves and they really want to do better. They want better, healthier plants. They want a bigger yield. Those are the ones that are on the internet and they're studying. They're studying labels, they're studying biologicals. And those are the ones that kind of reach out to me and ask a lot of questions. I find around here in New England, most who got involved in the, the cannabis wave that came in huge for us a few years ago. You know, everybody thought because maybe they liked the effects of cannabis that they'd be good at running a business doing it. Well, they kind of all went out of business already. But I found a lot of them, if their friend got them into the hobby and said, hey, this is all you need to use. You use this, this cycle, this cycle, that cycle, and you're all done. I find a good percentage of those growers never do anything else or use anything else because they're perfectly happy with enough for their own consumption and then maybe sell some to a dispensary or to a friend to make a couple extra bucks. I, I, those, uh, that's, a, that's a big percentage of people in our area here, but there's a, there's a, a quarter of that that'll really want to educate themselves and, and push their plants, and they're not afraid to make a mistake. Anybody who's growing anything better than anybody else 
they've made mistakes where they've lost a crop, they've lost yield, they've made mistakes, but then they come back and they've perfected it and they've done better. So it's those people that aren't afraid to push the envelope that eventually are going to get honed in on a system. Yeah, so really the big takeaway in my book is it's all about figuring out what the limiting factor of growth is, whether it's your genetics, whether it's your watering, whether it's some sort of nutrient imbalance um, or some sort of lacking microbe or biological activity in your soil, whatever it is that's limiting your overall growth, or, you know, in some cases, like you mentioned, it may be root space. It may be you're in a container too small, but whatever it is that's limiting is what's going to determine your overall yield. So if you can reduce the number of things that are limiting factors in your soil or remove them, you're going to maximize the plant's ability to grow healthy, to, to grow a giant pumpkin or grow really good, high quality cannabis. Yeah, that's, that's true. I couldn't have said it better myself. And how much effort are you putting in? What's it come down to for time? Uh, you know, there's a reason why the people who consistently grow the best, you know, the best quality, the best yields, whether it's pumpkins, cannabis, or whatever, you'll find that they're working really hard and they're putting in the effort. And I tell people all the time, you can't expect to get those results by putting in that effort. And so, you know, a lot of that comes down to effort too at times and how much, you're, how much you're putting into it. But there's a real fascination, the connection between cannabis growers and giant pumpkin growers because, that, you know, what I found is they're all very friendly. You get everybody. It's like a mutual admiration society. You get everybody in a room. It doesn't matter what you do for a living, what you did, what your race is, nothing. That all fades away, the common love for growing what you're growing. And then the information starts to come out. I don't know about your community, but in our community, there's really no secrets. Everybody just sits there and tells everybody, yeah, I think this will help. Have you tried this? Can you do this? You know, because that's how we've pushed along and, and succeeded and, you know, push the envelope. Hey, we've got people growing eight-pound tomatoes now. They're, they're pushing the envelope towards the world's first 10-pound tomato. I mean, that's, that's incredible, you know? That really is incredible. As someone who loves and yeah. grows tomatoes, I can't even imagine. I've never gotten any, anywhere close to that. But, uh, I, oh, go ahead. Well, I've, I've grown five-pound tomatoes, and uh, I, don't, I don't put a ton of effort into my you know, tomatoes and stuff. I grow really nice. The, the giant tomatoes, I don't. My vegetable garden looks looks really good, but they're just, it's crazy. It, you know, genetics uh, of what some of these plants are capable of now. But, you know, once again, that all goes back to, Everybody sharing information, making these genetic crosses, and making the seeds, you know, available, the plants available uh, to people. You know, this, that bigpumpkins.com, the website you mentioned is, yeah, that's a go-to for giant pumpkin growers. Always has been, uh, and you know, uh, it's still as popular, if not more, even with the onset of Instagram and Facebook and all of that stuff where a lot of people get their information. Big Pumpkins is still a community that we go to to post our information. Yeah, I heard uh, Jerry Seinfeld got on there for a little bit, apparently. I did. I did hear that. Uh, somebody played that for me a while ago. You know, the Giant Pumpkins have brought success and they've brought notoriety to people. Uh, going, you name all those national shows, uh, a lot of the pumpkin growers have been on them. It's it's really brought a lot of attention to the hobby because what might be a little bit different, you know, where cannabis sometimes is still looked upon as not being as overall accepted as what a giant pumpkin would be. Everybody loves a giant pumpkin. Everybody smiles. Every October, it's like, we got to see a giant pumpkin. 
also, you know, a lot of the growers have been on the national news, every magazine, you know, TV, you name it, and it brings a lot of attention to the hobby, and uh, you know, which is which is great. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about what you're doing now. So we had talked. You'd mentioned mycorrhizal fungus, and I know that you now uh, sell some of these products. You have a you have a website, which uh, I'll mention at the beginning, or you can mention it right now, and as well as uh, some some products that you really believe in. Can you talk a little about what you're doing now for a business? Sure. Well, WallaceWow.com is my website. And, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I got fascinated in the study of mycorrhizal fungi, you know, back in, oh, 2002, 2003. I started educating myself more and became really fascinated by it. And then I, uh, you know, set my first world record in 2006. And the big part of that was using mycorrhizal fungi. Then I you know, I found over the years that there was there was a market uh, for people who were very much interested in obtaining high quality mycorrhizal fungi and uh, fresh mycorrhizal fungi, not something that's been sitting on a shelf, you know, or in a warehouse for a few years. Because all of these biologicals, they, they don't get any better the longer they sit in a bag. So, um, you know, food service had been my, you know, my trade. I was a you know, executive chef, been in the business my whole life. And four years ago, uh, you know, I started working with a manufacturer and uh, he said, hey, Ronnie, you would be uh, really good at running your own business. You've got brand recognition, you're a respected guy, uh, you know, so let's work together. So we did. So it's been it's been four years now. And I, I retired from my job at the country club in February, you know, for a few reasons. One, I worked in food service all my life. I worked every night, weekend, and holiday for 35 years since high school. And, and two, the business became so demanding and, and so popular, you know, knock on wood, that I had to dedicate. It could not be done, you know, with part-time hours anymore. I had to be full-time. So so I do uh, have a lot of, you know, happy customers in the, you know, both the cannabis and, you know, the giant pumpkin community, home gardeners, people growing flowers, uh, you name it, uh, you know, they found me on the internet and, you know, what I found is I'm, you know, I have kind of a grassroots approach and, you know, if people didn't like the product and it didn't work, then, then it wouldn't sell. But once again, what I found in, you know, giant pumpkin community and the cannabis community is they're very free to mention, Hey, this product really did worked well for me. You should try it. And, uh, so that's kind of how I, I got my grassroots approach and, and built the business, uh, you know, because, you know, didn't have the budget going in to be spending, you know, $1,000 a month on Google AdWords or anything else like that. So it kind of started slow and it really, uh, it really took off because people are very happy with the product. The labels are easy to read the directions. You know, I stand behind, you know, my products and, you know, I, I sell a lot of things that, you know, people use in their everyday gardens. I have a, you know, I have a starter pack, you know, a lot of cannabis growers use and, you know, starting there, you know, they transplants in, they, they seem to really like them. Um, you know, the home gardeners, you know, I, I find that women drives the market for the home gardeners because I get tons of email from women and, uh, and they have legitimate concerns. Hey, I don't want my hands in a bag of fertilizer. So, you know, my starter pack is enclosed in a tea bag. And, and so all you have to do is take the tea bag out. Don't even have to open it up, put it underneath the plant and walk away. And they really like them. So things have been, things have been going real well for me. And, uh, you know, I brought on 
a social media person recently, and I have some help now in my warehouse with shipping and receiving because it, it started getting out in front of me where, you know, like any small business, um, how much inventory do I need? And then, you know, you, I, I'm sure you can attest to these mistakes too. You get you get shorthanded a couple times in inventory because you don't know just what you need. You don't want to have too much because, you know, my whole thing is freshness. If, if it's not fresh, I'm, I'm not going to sell it to you. So, um, but things are things have been working out. I'm very very happy doing it. I I love the emails I get from people. I love the educating. It's my passion. I love soil. I love science. Uh, so it's been very passionate about it. And um, and the and the members of the Wild family is what I call them. They're very passionate about growing too. So it's worked out really well. Yeah, that's really great. You know, I hadn't. You and I started talking when you originally started the business. We were talking about mycorrhizal fungus, just conversations uh, over the phone, and you. You and I talked about you know this some of the packaging sizes, and I've been using and selling the uh, five pound package that you have the Wow Mycorrhiza uh, for a few years now. You've been doing this. Um, that's great to hear you're expanding and things are going well. Uh, that's really really great. Thank you and thank you for your support. Uh, you've been instrumental in helping me. Uh, you were my first uh, you know wholesale uh, account so to speak, that kind of got me going. We worked together on figuring things out. You've been instrumental in helping with the packaging. And, and once again, I, I've found that with many, many people that I've dealt with who, who have a business. They've been more than open to saying, hey, uh, take a look at this. Here, here's how we should be looking at this. And I would coming from the business I came from, food service, you couldn't call up somebody who was a competitor or sold similar products and said, hey, what do you think? I, I found that a lot of people in this end of it have been you know, like karma, they feel if they're good to you, you'll be good to them. Everybody succeeds, and there's plenty of room for everybody. And and uh, it's yeah, it's it's been uh, it's been amazing. Every day, I'm thankful when I wake up and and I have orders to fulfill. I'm very very blessed. Yeah, you know, we do sell similar products, but at the same time, like you mentioned, we're all we're all doing something better for the world. I feel like if we're getting people to use organics and promoting biologicals, so I'm all for it. And the, th the thing that I really love about your product is it is the right species. It's the uh, Glomus interradices or uh, Rhizophagus uh, irregularis is the new name. But uh, it's the right species of mycorrhiza for most vegetables, including pumpkins and cannabis. And I know if I'm buying it for you, I'm getting something that's fresh. And that's really important to me because I'm not going through a giant distribution system where it may have been you know, in a warehouse for a year before getting to that hydro shop and then I'm buying it there or online, you really don't know what you get either. So no, I, I really enjoy working with you and I wish you the best with your, your business. Thank, thank you very much. Yeah, we're going to continue to work hard uh, every day and sell the highest quality, freshest, you know, mycorrhizal product out there. I'm just, just blessed to be in such, you know, the two big communities is, you know, the giant pumpkins one. Because I'll always be, you know, I am the, you know, giant pumpkin man is what everybody calls me. Uh, but uh, and and a cannabis community has has accepted me very very well. I think they like working with small business, you know, people. And I get a lot of comments how shocked they are that I actually return a phone call and an email. And I said, no, I, I do that every day. So, but uh, it's wonderful communities to work in. Some really nice people who are working hard to, you know, make the world a better place. That's for sure. And I, I thoroughly enjoy it. Well, hopefully you can see another world record this year. That'd be great. Well, it would be. That's my goal. Uh, you know, I, I really have a goal. I'd love to win another world championship, uh, and that would be my fourth, and that would tie Howard Dill, the creator, uh, 
at four world championships. And, and I think if I could do that one day, I would probably take a year or two off. Uh, that is my goal is to tie, uh, to tie Howard, uh, the world record. That's always my goal. Uh, I think me personally, I'm probably a few years away from that. I mean, 2,624 pounds was and is an incredible, incredible pumpkin. Uh, so I have to perfect my system a little bit more now. Uh, I have to get a better start with my greenhouses, and I, I need some pretty good weather. And so it probably won't happen for me uh, this year, but uh, we're going to have fun. Whatever I get, uh, it won't be from a lack of effort, that's for sure. But, uh, yeah, one day I, I'll, I'll hoist that, that record again, I'm sure. I, I, that's my goal. And if you, if you don't have a goal, if you can't think it, you'll never do it. That was Ron Wallace, two-time world record holder and three-time world champion for Giant Pumpkins. His website is wallacewow.com, where you can see photos of the amazing pumpkins he's grown along with other vegetables. I hope today's podcast was helpful for growers when considering yield and how we can incorporate some of these principles with growing cannabis. If you're interested in growing your own Giant Pumpkin, I suggest checking out bigpumpkins.com. It's a great forum. You're listening to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey. Don't forget, there's more information articles available on our website and blog at www.kisorganics.com, as well as links to the data and information we discuss in this episode on the podcast page. 